listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 195 of Belaboured. We are, like everyone else, all coronavirus all the time these days, as is appropriate as the virus is kind of upending global capitalism. As such, on top of our regular podcasts, we're going to be bringing you stories on the Descent website of people who are working or not working in the time of COVID-19. We've got a few of them up already with Amazon workers and Pennsylvania State employees. And by the time you hear this podcast, there will probably be more at descentmagazine.org slash tag slash belabored dash stories. You can share your stories with us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, write to us individually to Today on the podcast, we will be checking in on what Congress is doing and not doing for working people. But first, the news. Nurses, of course, are on the front lines of this crisis, and they understand very well how our stripped-down healthcare system is failing patients and providers at the best of times. In this moment, of course, it is far worse. I spoke with Zenny Cortez, a nurse at Kaiser Permanente South San Francisco Medical Center and one of the co-presidents of National Nurses United, which represents 150,000 nurses across the U.S., I spoke with her just after she and other nurses held a protest for more protective equipment. This morning, we had a rally in front of the hospital. Nurses are still fed up due to lack of personal protective equipment. And it's not like our employer continues to say that we have it, but we are being prevented from using it because they don't want to run out. So... Uh, nurses from the night shift and the morning shift, we came out, you know, like, uh, released our frustration because we want the public to know that um, we need to take care of our patients. We need to do mm-hmm. the right thing. We need to safely take care of our patients. And all yeah. we want is to be protected. That's all we want. Our hospital has canceled elective surgery, so we're we're doing only emergent surgeries like infection, uh, cancer surgeries. I work in the perioperative department Mm -hmm. because we don't have that many patients in the department. We are being floated out to the Uh uh, regular floors. So I can speak to you about what's going on because I see it. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we are in our own little apartment, you know, separated from um, everybody. The nurses are being given assignments that includes both non-COVID patients with mm-hmm. COVID patients. So they're intermingled. I'm strongly against it because the cross-contamination can happen. Even mm-hmm. though you are very um, careful, your risk of cross-contamination is very high. and the other thing, too, is instead of downgrading or lessening the number of patients that you would care for, it remains the same, like like a regular medical surgical mm-hmm. patient, which is five patients to one nurse. But the amount of time that you spend donning and doffing takes a lot of time, so you need to have less patients, but Uh that's not what's happening. 
So that's another demand that we have put out there is to give us the proper amount of staff because the tendency is, and it's, um, I think, human behavior is that you're inside the isolation room and you're thinking of your other patients that are waiting for you, right? So that should not be happening because, again, the risk of infecting yourself and then passing it on to the next patient and when you intermingle with your coworkers, then you might be carrying it. And the other thing that is apparent is the management of the units are, are nowhere to be found. They're, they're holed up inside their offices mm-hmm. and they make all these decisions. And the one very important part of the PPE is the N95 mask, which Mm -hmm. is also called the respirator. Those are locked up inside managers' offices in their cabinets so that if you need one, you would have to search for that manager in order for them to give you one, which Mm -hmm. I think is absurd because... If there's an emergency going on with a positive COVID patient, you mm-hmm. want to jump in and take care of the patient, you know. But mm-hmm. if the masks, the N95 masks are not readily available, then that there's a problem. So it's it's really frustrating because we have not even peaked mm-hmm. with the number of patients. So. And what are you hearing from nurses at other hospitals, from other members of the union in different places? Is it kind of the same story in a lot of places? Yes, it's the same story. And I was just telling a colleague because I have made myself available to a lot of the Mm -hmm. nurses. And Mm -hmm. so they've been sending me horror stories after horror stories, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't. Because... Why why is this happening? We are in America, the richest country, one of the richest countries in the world, and yet nurses who have, um, you know, given themselves to be the front line are being denied something very important to protect ourselves and our patients. Mm -hmm. That's, That's what's really hurting me the most. And I've been a nurse for 40 years, four decades, and this is the first time. Uh, this has happened. What are we learning about the American healthcare system in this moment? I mean, it feels like this is just showing us everything that's wrong. Way back in January, we got wind of this virus because at that time there was no name yet. And so yeah. we wrote a letter. We demanded that the World Health Organization and the CDC strengthened their guidance on prevention and control of this virus. And yet we were ignored. And and so we said we need to be strict on the guidance because we do not know a whole lot about this virus. And again, you know, because of not having those guidance from the powers, Hospitals dismiss it like nothing. And if only we had a universal healthcare system, single payer, wherein 
patients can have easy access to a provider, to a healthcare provider, then mm-hmm. a whole lot of this transmission and control and cross-contamination could have stopped. But because our people do not have that opportunity, you know, they're afraid to seek medical help because it might mean a high copay when they come visit the doctor or see a nurse practitioner or come to the emergency room, then that prevented them from seeking early medical Mm -hmm. And so in the meantime, they've contaminated the people around them. They've contaminated the whole community. And, you know, it's it's so wrong. It is a broken healthcare system. Broken. That was Zenny Cortez of National Nurses United. You can read our full conversation at The Nation, and there will be links to that as well as everything we've discussed on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Rideshare app drivers, the folks who drive Uber and Lyft cars, have been flattened by the coronavirus. Many of them have been unable to work as ride requests have dried up. Others have gone out to pick up rides, but have risked being infected by the virus. Overall, drivers are extremely vulnerable. One Queen's Uber driver recently died after being infected with COVID-19. Uber, for its part, has offered two weeks of paid leave, but only to drivers who are diagnosed or quarantined for the virus. Drivers groups say that the rideshare giants are falling woefully short, both in terms of providing for drivers' health and in protecting their livelihoods. The California-based group Rideshare Drivers United has called for immediate economic relief based on the state's new law for gig workers, known as AB5, which we've reported on before. AB5 provides a legal framework for Uber and Lyft drivers to claim labor and welfare protections, such as unemployment insurance. The group has also urged a statewide eviction moratorium, as well as a basic income for all drivers. The rideshare industry, not surprisingly, has fiercely opposed AB5, so it's unclear whether the drivers will be able to obtain unemployment benefits. However, the public health crisis has highlighted the deep inequities in the rideshare sector. I spoke with Rideshare Drivers United organizer Tyler Sandness on the actions that drivers are taking to hold Uber and Lyft accountable. Rideshare Drivers United, um, one of the things that we're doing right now is that we're spreading the word about a petition that's going directly to the state government to, as well as the companies and local governments to explain that this is a really vulnerable population. Gig economy workers don't have the traditional safety nets that a lot of other employees have. And this is after we won a law that really kind of solidified the line of what we actually were. So what, what the extra wrinkle here in California is that drivers won AB5, right, which is the law that, that reclassifies us as employees. It says that the companies have been misclassifying us as independent contractors for years, but since January, the companies haven't conformed to the law, and the state has been slow to implement it. And now we're about to kind of see how those things kind of hit ahead now that drivers exist in this kind of limbo, right? We're clearly not independent contractors according to AB5, and yet we may have limited access to the same kinds of safety nets that other employees enjoy. Stuff like uh, sick leave, stuff like a minimum wage where drivers could have had a bit more in savings in order to ride this out. For many of us, we were working paycheck to paycheck um, and now that 80%, like up to 80% of the business is now dried up over the weekend um, because everybody's scared and everybody's social distancing. Um, so nobody's getting rides. And so all these drivers that were making this their full-time job and this was their source of, 
uh, sole source of income, it's it's a really grim situation. Um, and we need support. We need the state to step in here and offer some protections to us um, and force the companies to have to, you know, pay for sick leave um, and be able to give us access to resources that we need in order to survive this, um, because many of us won't without that. I'm hopeful that this is a moment where we're able to skid just below disaster enough that people kind of realize that, yes, workers do need more representation. They do need better protections. And there is a relationship between the employer and the employee where the employer does have a responsibility to their workforce, not just their shareholders. That was Tyler Sandness, an organizer with Rideshare Drivers United. As we just heard from Zenny Cortez, healthcare workers on the front lines are making do with undersupplies of desperately needed protective equipment and medical devices. Private industry and decades of healthcare cutbacks as companies seek to make profits has meant that our capacity to care for people, let alone to protect the people who are doing the care work, is at an all-time low. But some manufacturing help is coming as Ford, in partnership with the United Auto Workers, the company 3M, which already makes respirators, and GE Healthcare, plans to step up production of respirators and other protective and medical gear. The project is being called, somewhat uh, hyperbolically, Project Apollo, inspired by the Apollo 13 space mission. We were the arsenal of democracy during two world wars, executive chairman Bill Ford announced also hyperbolically, on the Today Show. We built iron lungs for polio patients. Whenever we're called on, we're there. End quote. According to Automotive News, the company plans, quote, to aid 3M in boosting production of respirator designs that 3M is already producing, while simultaneously building its own respirators using a makeshift design that includes fans from F-150 pickup seats, hoods from assembly plant, paint shops, 3D printed parts, and portable tool battery packs that could allow the devices to run for up to eight hours, end quote. The respirators will be built at Ford's Redford, Michigan Manufacturing Center, and they would be able to build something like 1,000 respirators per month, which would boost 3M's capacity tenfold. The company also plans to produce up to 100,000 face shields per week at its Troy Design and Manufacturing Facility in Plymouth, Michigan. This is the kind of equipment that nurses and others have been calling for. Ford is also going to work with GE to increase capacity for the ventilators that GE makes and work on a separate effort to increase ventilator production for the UK's National Health Service. This, of course, echoes things that I have heard from auto workers on this show and elsewhere, and other manufacturing workers who've been facing the shutdown of their plants, most recently at places like GM Lordstown. They have asked repeatedly for people to let them make things that are useful from solar panels to now desperately needed healthcare equipment. This also, of course, undermines the ongoing claim that these factories have to be shut down rather than retool, and undermines the idea that our economy cannot rapidly shift to something like, say, green production to tackle the climate catastrophe that's also still coming. And of course, it shows that when healthcare is actually a national and international priority, we can turn our economy towards those priorities. If you are a UAW member working in any of these plants on this project, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And if any of you are working on similar projects at the company where you work, please also get in touch. If you're like millions of other Americans who are hunkering down for a long lockdown, 
you've probably gotten a hankering to shop online. Maybe a bulk order of ramen, a 12-pack of TP, or some resistance bands for those quarantine workouts. All that convenience, though, comes at a disturbing cost for the workforce of Amazon, which stretches from the people packing your orders at the warehouses to the same-day delivery driver pulling up to your front door. And that workforce is only getting bigger now that online orders are set to increase as people lock themselves inside. There have been several Amazon warehouse workers who have already been diagnosed with COVID-19 in recent days, including some here in New York City, and labor advocates are rallying for stronger protections, greater transparency, and more comprehensive leave policies for workers who are affected by the virus. I spoke with Zachary Lerner of New York Communities for Change, one of the groups that is helping workers at a Staten Island Amazon facility known as JFK 8 organize and fight for fairer working conditions. He talked about the ramifications of Amazon intensifying and expanding its operations amid the pandemic. I think what is pretty crazy right now is that during this crisis that Amazon has essentially only given unpaid time off for workers and, you know, only these two weeks paid if you test positive, which right now for the workers that we've been talking to, you know, whether it's on Staten Island or other parts of the country, people are just really worried because one, these fulfillment centers, you know, on Staten Island, for instance, there are, when it's not peak season are 2,500 workers. And then at when it's at its highest, it's at 4,000 or 4,500 workers. And if we're even hearing from Trump and other places that you shouldn't be gathering in places more of like 10 people or something, this is a, this is like a pretty big trap for people to catch the coronavirus. And so many workers have chose to, to use their UPT time to not come in for fear of, you know, catching corona. But then at the same time, they aren't making any, they're not making any of their money. They still have to pay their bills. They still have to pay rent. They still have all these expenses and support their families. And so many of the workers you're talking to are still like choosing to go in, even though they have that option just because they can't afford not to. And additionally, at JFK 8 on Staten Island and at other parts of the country, Amazon is now starting mandatory overtime so that workers now not only not only do they have to work their normal shifts, they then have to work extra hours and extra days because I think it's probably my my guess would be it's a combination of both a lot of people taking off, which we've heard that a lot of people are using this UPT uh, as a way to just avoid trying to catch this. And then on the other hand, you have all these people who are now ordering online. And so it's sort of that, you know, it's a pretty bad situation now where workers are sort of trapped. I'm like, I need to make, I need to actually be able to pay my bills, but I also I'm being told like I should work from home and not, you know, risk infecting my family or neighbors or anybody else. From the workers that we're talking to, like there is this real question of should the warehouses remain open? Because if you, until like during this time when we don't really know that it can easily spread. And so there's just like a real question around that, but at least guaranteeing that if they have to close warehouses, that workers are going to continue to get paid and that's been something around the board that folks want to see, like 100%, people should be getting paid 100% of their wages if the warehouse is forced to close due to corona. Do you think that Amazon will seize this opportunity to kind of continue to grow its monopoly power? Because it seems like, if anything, the rest of the economy seems to be uh, spiraling into a black hole at this point. Uh, but Amazon seems to be profiting directly from that. So, I mean, by the time we sort of emerge from this crisis, uh, we could see like an even more powerful Amazon, right? 
I think that's a huge fear that many of us have, that this is all, they're going to use this opportunity with the hiring of 100,000 people and all this is all them trying to consolidate power and take over the entire market. And that, yeah, like, it's what we saw, like, when the economy crashed last time, where, like, the banks sort of consolidated power, and now we have fewer banks who now have even more power than they had before. I think Amazon is going to use this moment to do the exact same thing and take over the entire sort of logistics supply chain for the country. And I also talked to one belabored listener who works for an Amazon delivery contractor in Ohio. He talked about what he encounters every day when he makes his rounds with his truck. He opted to remain anonymous to avoid disclosing his employer. So my job is to work delivering for a Amazon DSP, which is like a, like, you know, like a private company that their sole customer is Amazon. So they own their like, or lease their own trucks. And like, they're the ones who are actually like paying me and I'm working for them. So since our only customer is Amazon, like we rely on them to get our own, to get our routes. So I've been really pushing to know like what is going on because I enjoy working for this employer, like, and they're a good, they're good people to work for. Um, but when I look around like the warehouse and every, like no one is wearing any masks, like some people are wearing gloves, but it's like, it's a crowded environment. So like clearly if any, it's not a good situation for containing any kind of virus. Um, so I was asking what we would do and the consensus seems to be like that they will probably not close the warehouse um, because delivery in Amazon is considered to be like a, an untouchable thing, I guess. Our warehouse or like our fulfillment center, I'm not sure the exact name of like what it is, but it's where they unload the trucks and put them into routes. And I would guess there's like somewhere between 50 to 100 people that work unloading at any given time. And then there's between two to four or 500 drivers that will come in and out throughout a day. So at a given time, like when we load or unload, like there may be 50 other people like pushing around carts like loading trucks helping each other load trucks so there's no physical distance distancing or social distancing happening and it's impossible to have that i would say and what about the stuff that you're delivering are you are you delivering these like huge bulk, oh, bulk orders of yeah it's all like, like the big like amazon pantry like the food yeah. like instapot <laughs> toilet paper napkins sanitizers you, you need your instapot for the uh, survival bunker i'm sure oh my gosh yeah yeah, it's all that all that kind of stuff. And I know that it's an important thing to do. And it's what our family's been talking about is like, I can go to work and help people by delivering these things because a delivery system is pretty essential. But at the same time, like we're good at delivering things and we're also really good at spreading viruses while we're doing it. So I don't really know the ethical thing to do. And that was an Amazon delivery truck driver talking about what he faces on the job. And before that was Zachary Lerner of New York Communities for Change. For more stories about workers on the front lines of the pandemic, go to the Descent website under the new section, Belabored Stories. So the coronavirus pandemic is now causing an economic malaise, the likes of which the world has never seen. As we record this, we are hurtling rapidly towards a recession or a depression, and Congress is in the midst of finalizing a gargantuan $2 trillion aid package to deal with the fallout of COVID-19. It includes cash payments to families, expanded unemployment benefits, big breaks for corporations, and aid to states, localities, and hospitals. On Thursday, we talked to Mike Konzel, Director of Progressive Thought at the Roosevelt Institute, about what the package does and doesn't do for the workers and communities hardest hit by this crisis. 
Mike, we're going to make you start off by telling us what the hell is going on in Congress. Um, specifically, what is sort of a broad outline of this mishmash stimulus thing that passed in the Senate last night after lots of shouting and posturing? Sure. Last night, the Senate, which will be the major choke point in this bill passing, was able to pass a uh, $2.2 trillion stimulus. For context, uh, roughly two weeks ago, nobody was really talking about anything over $500 billion in size. Mm-hmm. And now it's $2.2 trillion in size and still feels very underwhelming for what we mm-hmm. need right now. So it shows the severity of the crisis. And the bill largely does five things. We can take them apart one by one, but it uh, provides an expansion of unemployment insurance, sends everyone a check for $1,200 and, and more for dependents. It provides aid to small and local businesses. It does a bunch of healthcare related things. And then it does a backstop and some bailouts for certain companies and for Wall Street as a whole. And yeah. each of them are, are various versions of ideas that had been floating around. And this is what it looks like when it gets outside of the sausage making in the U.S. Senate. So overall, would you say that this is a, a good a good bill for working people or at least a sort of a, a solid down payment on some of those uh, long term ideas that uh, that progressives and been hoping for? It's going to help people, uh, but it's not really up to the moment. Um, and it's questionable about how much it will have a lasting impactful change on um, how difficult it is out there in the economy. So, you know, like I think a a really good example is something like um, unemployment insurance, right? So this is um, based on a a very simple and straightforward idea, which is basically you furlough the uh, whole economy for the next three months. So everyone essentially just goes on unemployment when they can't work, especially if they're non-essential workers. And the government sends them checks and businesses lose their major line item. Um, and, you know, thus they're able to keep going. And it's kind of a version of what's being tried out in Denmark and the UK and other places that mm-hmm. have better infrastructure to execute such a thing. However, our system is so broken on unemployment insurance, the states starve it so much. And the fissuring of the workplace has left so many people Uh, without even the basic benefits of things like unemployment insurance, that it's actually really hard to expand it rapidly. Yeah. Um, So what they essentially do is, uh, it's it's complicated, but people, um, hopefully there'll be ways to educate people, because I think a lot of people will be eligible for it that won't know about it. Uh, But they essentially just basically say, everyone gets $600 more. We can't actually verify your income to try to replace it, which is what unemployment insurance normally does. All these uh, self-employed people, people who are driving for Uber, you know, we can't verify your income in real time. So we're just going to give you $600. That's good for a short-term crisis. And I think it'll help a lot of people, but that's not actually how you want to build the system to be expanded in the future. And so as such, we're pretty worried that like, you know, everyone's going to kind of remember this as something that sort of didn't work very well in a really stressful time and not a foundation for something that can provide economic security in the future. Is this how they expanded unemployment benefits during the Great Recession um, back at the stimulus bill? It's similar. So in 2008, they expanded unemployment insurance to uh, 99 weeks, uh, essentially, over time. A pro and a con of that that uh, analogy. One is that it didn't ex- it expanded the length of people who already got it or who are already eligible to get it. This does not expand it as much. It's expanded, I think, essentially for four months. Uh, and I might be getting some of these numbers wrong, but I think they're generally right. Okay. Um, it's expanded for four months, uh, but it's much wider. M- many more people are eligible for it that would not have been eligible in 2008, 9, and 10. So that's helpful. Uh, but yeah. it's uh, it's important to remember after the Great Recession, because states were hit so hard, the various numbers you associate with a healthy uh, unemployment insurance system all went down in the states during yeah. the 
mid-off or mid-teens, 20 teens. Um, so we're kind of worried that you might be setting it up for a similar situation now. Can you explain just um, how the, the gig worker piece will work? Because I think um, that that seemed to be quite uh, maybe unprecedented in terms of expanding benefits to this particular class of workers. But is it is it basically just kind of like a lump, a lump sum that they're throwing at them? Or is there uh, more kind of more to it? I that? don't know enough to, to, to okay. really clarify for an audience uh, who might really need that information presented well. So I'm going to duck it if that's okay. Can you edit that out? Present, yeah. present company included. Um, yeah. But people will presumably, they will at least be covered in the $1,200 checks that we're all theoretically getting at some point. Yes. Plus, plus yes. $500 per kid, is that right? Or... Uh, yes. So it's uh, uh, if you make over um, $100,000 a year, I think it starts to taper down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but for most people, it will be um, $1,200 an adult, $500 for a dependent. So we want to circle back to that question in a little bit. But first, I wanted to say, like, we also this morning got the unemployment numbers, and they're astronomical. And I wanted to know, like, what if that was what you were thinking we'd see? Is it higher than you expected? How does that change what we think about this thing that the Senate passed last night before we saw those numbers? Yeah, it's important to remember one thing about the Great Recession was that the numbers were far worse than people understood them. And so they were passing bills not understanding how bad things were. I think people who watched it closely, and I was following a lot of people who are really on the nose with unemployment claims because you started to see these trickle out in the states. Yeah. Uh, and it was more or less where people kind of ballparked it. Uh, Heidi Scherholz at uh, Economic uh, Policy Institute, many other people were pretty close on it, but I don't think Congress quite understood that. And I think we really need to be thinking in terms of depression economics. I mean, it is significantly worse than the worst parts of the Great Recession. And what people are seeing and experiencing and around themselves in their communities is happening across the country. And there is a way in which we do this well, and we can largely pick things up to where they were, uh, as bad as that sounds, uh, in yeah. three or four months. But there's also a world in which a lot of people are permanently laid off. A lot of businesses close. A lot of right. communities collapse. And, and a lot of austerity and retrenchment happens. And we don't recover fast at all. And that's a much worse world. So for uh, for several days, there were sort of two rival bills uh, floating around in, in Congress. And uh, the Democrats were um, kind of uh, putting forward uh, their own version. Um, it appears that those these two versions will somehow be reconciled ultimately in final legislation. Um, do you know what are the key compromises that Democrats made or um, are expected to make um, in the final bill? My sense is that the House will pass the Senate version. I think, you know, there'll be time for political culpability and blame in, in perhaps very soon. But I think the House Democrats did not use their leverage and did not do a particularly good job of providing a left flank here. Um, they stalled way too long. Um, there was a period in which Mitch McConnell was not taking this very seriously. I think not this past weekend, but the weekend before, he had uh, the Senate take a three-day weekend. I don't know if people remember this. Uh, at a point when it was very clear a major trillion-dollar-plus bill was going to pass or needed to pass. Uh, and the House did not really push its advantage in being able to set the tone of what it should include. Um, they could have passed a bill that just did all the things that we know needed to be done. And, and not even in a, a aggressive form, but excluded the bailouts, which are going to be very unpopular and politically toxic and probably rebound to hurt the Democrats more than Trump. You know, they could have just passed that or they could have even gone bolder and done a really aggressive package that protects workers in their entirety, protects businesses in their entire or small and medium sized businesses in their entirety. Instead, 
they kind of did nothing and then kind of overreacted by doing this laundry list thing that checked a lot of boxes but didn't necessarily provide a comprehensive alternative. So, you know, I, I don't think we should have a lot of confidence in what the House Democrats managed to pull off in this situation. And as such, they'll probably do what the Senate just passed them. So the Republicans in the Senate, specifically my favorite person, Lindsey Graham, who I would love to pay not to work, threatened to hold this up over the idea that some low-wage workers might actually get more for a little while they than they normally make. And this ongoing sort of obsession with work must pay, even in this moment where like the thing we need to do is shut the economy down for several months. And how this fits in with this like growing, you know, send everybody back to work on Easter, even if it means we kill all your grandparents. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's, um, it's crazy on two fronts. And I think they're both worth taking time. One is like, whether or not we should purposely put people at risk, workers at risk, and everyone at risk to like get the economy going, which is totally a abstract concept. Um, I think sometimes people just mean the stock market. And when they say that, which is going up because it loves death and unemployment. Right. Right, exactly. They certainly don't mean like local communities or a hospital because they're not funding those things. They're not securing those things. So like it reflects that kind of impulse of like, okay, we got to like get past this quickly and get back to normal. It also reflects a conversation that's like one nice thing about basic income or the minimum wage or other things that do income support for low income people is like, yeah, you can in fact not take a shitty job and not starve to death because there's this safety net. Uh, And that compels workers to work harder, right? Um, Right. You know, the exact numbers, I think you can kick around, but essentially, I think what Graham was ultimately complaining about was like someone who makes $10 an hour can maybe make $13 or $14 or $15 and make make air quotes um, by being laid off. That's First of all, being laid off is not a choice workers make. It's a choice capital and bosses make. Um, But secondarily, like that's great because it's like a $15 minimum wage, which is that it will like stop shitty jobs and force employers to treat their workers better and pay them better and provide better conditions. So the ideology is really deep on that stuff. And and it's it's telling that you, you know, they had to fight tooth and nail to even get like perfunctory uh, checks on what will be a bailout of Boeing and the airlines, Mm -hmm. Um, like just reporting checks. But the fact that like, we can be very harshly ideological towards low income workers who are in the front lines of really tough stuff right now um, is is really ugly. Yeah, I was going to ask next, actually, about the airline industry, because it does seem like that is at least one place where there's like some sort of strings attached. Yeah. So 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 there's two things that that are going to happen. One is that there's a fund of about 50 billion dollars that is earmarked for airlines, cargo carriers, which is related to airlines and uh, industries related to national defense, which in our mm. corporate warfare state uh, could basically mean any economy, any cor- corporation, but probably means Boeing. And then there's that's $54 billion. And then there's $450 billion, which uh, goes to the Federal Reserve to lend money to the economy. That's sort of fake money. Uh, and it's right. sort of an accounting gimmick. So the way the Fed records losses is that they want to make sure they have political buy. It's it's a political game where the Fed wants buy-in from the Congress to lend to the real economy and buy bonds and keep credit markets going. Part of it's an accounting game. So it's not helpful that roughly a quarter of the actual stimulus bill is essentially made up yeah. <laughs> or largely an accountancy maneuver. And while I think those 
the terms under which the Fed lends to the economy can be stricter and they can do things like, and we can talk about do things like require firms be neutral in union agreements, which is what's stated in the bill that they should require, but not they don't have to require. Now that's being associated with this bailout money, which will be very unpopular. And my guess is like compared to the auto bailouts will be much more punitive to workers and have much less upside for the public as a whole. Yeah. And does this version of the bill also retain like Steve Mnuchin's authority to basically undermine any of the strings that are attached anyway? Yes, he has to report if he does why he does. And it has to have a justification. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like Congress could pass a law that says let's bail out Boeing or let's bail out the airlines or it could, you know, it could create a special, you know, bankruptcy chapter C for coronavirus. That's only for some firms right now. Basically, they don't want to do it. They don't want their fingerprints on it. They don't want to have to think hard about it. So they're like, let's have the treasury secretary do it, which at the end of the day, they have to basically say, you can do what you want with it because we're, you know, like we can, we can require you to report and, and, and try to do well by, by the public. But at the end of the day, you're the one who's doing it. So like, it's, you know, it's like a contract, like you, you have to ultimately execute it. So go do it. And that's what will happen. And it's like really discouraging that, for instance, the president was just impeached for holding up funding for political causes. So that's uh, uh, not not the best sign of things to come, uh, I think, in that world. Yeah. So did the Democrats learn anything from 2008? Yeah, though there, it's still a little training wheel. So like we're we're not hearing anything about the deficit, and that might change if there's a Democratic president next year. But you remember back to 2008, and this was a congressional thing, but it was also an Obama thing. Was mm-hmm. you know like a trillion dollars was like they actually were doing our history lessons nowadays. Um, you know, Larry Summers purposely excluded a recommendation. Uh, from a woman, uh, Christina Romer, uh, a very smart uh, and liberal macroeconomist, saying the stimulus would need to be around $1.6 to $1.8 trillion to really address the Great Recession. Larry Summers actually excluded the over trillion dollars recommendation because he thought it wasn't politically viable among the Democratic Mm -hmm. Congress. And now we just did $2.2 trillion. It passed 96 to 0 and it might have passed 100 to zero if many senators weren't in quarantine at this point. And crucially, the Democrats, to the extent that they were complaining about stuff, were not complaining about the price tag or robbing our grandchildren or any of that kind of stuff. That might just be suppressed for right now, and it might come back with the fury. But I think the period of just low interest rates and high debt and sluggish activity and no inflation, because there isn't a labor movement to demand wage increases and the corporate sector is a bloated corrupt mess so it doesn't invest in anything it just collects profits yeah uh, means that you know like the macro economy is actually perfectly fine for big public debts for the time being and for the foreseeable future also hoping one of those lessons is go back for more when this isn't enough yeah i am sympathetic that the dollar amounts are tough what i'm actually really frustrated with and it's something that everyone had been emphasizing from the beginning is that the checks are probably going to feel really insufficient. There's a lot of politics around this. Uh, I'm I'm really hoping it does not harm the the call for basic income more broadly. I think there's going to be a political impulse from the left and the right and many other places to say, "Aha, this was a corporate bailout, Boeing, and you know the airlines got everything they wanted. You got a $1,200 check. Ha ha ha! Isn't basic income awful? Yeah. Um, which is not like basic in- income is the only thing that reduces poverty that we know of." Um, many people can't work uh, and shouldn't work. And the only way to get them resources in a capitalist society is to give them income from the state. One thing that was we really tried to emphasize was that make sure the checks renew. It's not 
like the check might not be at the level you need it. It might be a lot harder to get it to people, particularly vulnerable people who don't file income taxes. Um, mm -hmm. There isn't a master list of people and their addresses. Uh, right. There's just like a bunch of tax returns and people move, people don't file sometimes uh, yeah. for perfectly legitimate reasons. And so it's actually tough to get people checks. But even if it's a mess on the first round, have it automatically renew in July and then again in September and then again next year. And especially if unemployment stays up next year, have it keep going because it's good for people and it's good for the economy as a whole. And look, next year you might have a Democratic president. You might not. I mean, you know, we'll find out. Um, but you might have a Republican Senate who will absolutely ask a President Biden to cut Social Security to keep that to get another round of that check. And you know what's going to happen then? It's really ugly and it's really a bad set for politics. And even if Democrats have united control, they're not going to want to waste legislative time with an ongoing pandemic crisis, but also climate change and the labor crisis and many other things to essentially spend a lot of their limited time and bandwidth repassing a check that we already know works and we already know we can do it. So um, I am personally very frustrated and angry that the check does not automatically renew. Um, I understand that it's not a high amount and it's not it, it's it's going to be hard to deliver. That's the nature of our really broken, dysfunctional state. Um, but the renewal thing was something that could have happened. I think the Dems could have gotten if they had pushed harder. So in the debate leading up to the bill, um, there was a more more discussion than usual, I would say, uh, about uh, universal basic income. Um, and sort of even even Andrew Yang was sort of work, doing the talk show circuit, kind of like doing a second run of his presidential campaign. Do you feel like the conversation on universal basic income has uh, kind of advanced in a, in a meaningful way? And is that reflected in the legislation? Because it is still, I mean, it's essentially means tested, right? Phases out around like, you know, 75K or something like that. So, um, so I mean, is it, is it a, it, it can, could we meaningfully say that uh, the 12 $100 check is is a form of um, basic income, if not completely universal, or are we not quite there? Whether or not it phases out, I mean, I, I think the fact that it doesn't renew is actually going to be the biggest political liability. Um, the fact that it phases out at a high income, like that would end up happening with the universal basic income because you, with the tax structure, that would probably be progressive to pay for it. So like it's means tested, but it's not a hard means test like Medicaid, where you, if you make over a certain income, you can't get it. The real problem, I think, is it's going to be one time. And I, I feel like even if it was just a second and third time where it could prime people for the expectation that this is something that can continue through a hard time, the one time, I think, is going to leave a bad taste in people's mouth about it because it's just like, oh, cool, I got this one check. Um, you know, and we tried to emphasize it at the time. It was like George W. Bush sent people checks. They weren't uh, low-income people did not get them. Uh, but in 2008, and I don't think people particularly remember it or think of it as like, uh, the, you know, like queer luxury automatic socialism from George W. Bush or anything. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I felt like if it had continued a little bit more, you could at least prime, you know, prime the ground for people to understand in that more comprehensive way. So I think it's a really good idea to give people who will... You know, like we know what to do. We, you know, people who lose their jobs, we replace their incomes. Industries that uh, are bankrupt, we bankrupt them and then restart them with, you know, perhaps with a public equity stake. You know, the general economy, you can backstop. But there are people who don't have employment. People are disabled. People are caregiving. People are educating themselves. People are retired. People are too young. Uh, mm -hmm. People are children. The only way to really get them resources is just to give them resources. And I worry the one-time check. Um well, ho hopefully we, people will understand how much it helped people, but I worry about the one-offness of it setting back that political cause. 
to get into the weeds a little bit further, um, there was about $100 billion offered to uh, the healthcare system. Um, that seems on the surface to be considerable sum, but um, I mean, does it does it help? I mean, people were, in addition, talking about universal basic income. I mean, they were talking about the need for Medicare for all that is underscored by this pandemic that we're all facing. Is the money that will be infused into the healthcare system, will it uh, change anything, uh, you know, institutionally or structurally about... Um, you know, how healthcare is delivered, or will it just essentially just kind of prop up a system that's kind of broken already? I don't know enough to know the Mm. nitty gritty about how it's going to be distributed. My understanding, obviously, more money is better at this moment. Um, My sense is that it's not going to change the precarity of frontline health workers who are really really in vulnerable spots working as like home health care aides and other people who have fallen through employment law, they fall through uh, protections. And that will not make their work more secure or give them breathing space or the tools that they need. It does not have the government use its production powers to directly make the things we need from masks to hospital beds to ventilators. That is still sitting on the sidelines because President Trump essentially does not want to, like, and I'm not even exaggerating, this does not want to mess with the prerogatives of private capital to do it. Um, You know, there's a aggressive way of saying it, but like, you know, industries, like if you invoke all these military acts to have the government basically nationalize or take over the hospital chain of production, you Mm -hmm. know, it's going to hurt our ability to do it. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. But you're not doing it. So like it needs to be done and it should be done. These are public goods and public necessities. So I don't think it interferes there in any meaningful way. And um, I think even if we're not going to get Medicare for all in the next two weeks, you could have had a much more aggressive expansion of funding for Medicaid. Um, And in general, I think there's $150 billion for the states. That's not going to be enough. Uh, States are absolutely going to do austerity, which we know, one, uh, really harms the recovery. It it absolutely devastated the recovery in the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, the austerity that's introduced is not rolled back in better times. Uh, we've seen it uh, with colleges in particular that, you know, since the 80s, 1980s, um, you know, in recession, states increase uh, tuition, decrease funding and let student loans fill the gap. And then in the recoveries, they do not lower that gap. So student loans ratchet up and they don't drop down. You know, there could be more aid to states. And one way to do aid to states is essentially say, look, we're going to be get everyone on Medicaid, put more people on Medicaid. There's lots of different ways to triage along that put all everyone who's newly unemployed can automatically go on medicaid um that's was not uh, aggressively attempted in this act and i think people are going to suffer for it to go back to the sort of pro pro business side of this legislation um yeah which is just basically most of it there were significant tax breaks in here for things like hotel chains and retailers um how would that affect um, I mean, are there are there strings attached to those? I mean, what will be the long term ramifications of that? Um, or uh, you know, is it can it in any way be justified as uh, sort of a sound fiscal policy? Yeah, no. Like, there's a lot of like gimmicky, goofy stuff. Um, like, it's bad, but in the scope of the amount of money we're talking about, it's not the worst thing. And if it greased the wheels for actual things that would have helped people long term. Like, fine, whatever. Uh, I think, like, the focus is that this is not where it needs to be for everyday people. One thing I think in particular for belabored listeners that is really interesting and really frustrating, um, there's a lot of money that's meant to help small businesses. 
which is generally people uh, firms that have under 500 people. But right. the way the fissured workplace works is that like a hotel chain like Marriott, which has, you know, air quotes, small business entrepreneurs that run their their chains, but are f- by all means employees who are fun- whose daily jobs are functionally controlled by the corporate entity. Um, they're cynically going in and out of the corporate structure to qualify for big firm loans for when that's appropriate, but also they're all just a bunch of small businesses uh, when that's appropriate. In the same way, Uber doesn't, you know, call its drivers workers, even though they clearly are controlled by the corporate entity. The same thing is true with a lot of franchisee owners, um, your McDonald's, your Marriott's, um, people who, um, you know, put up their own capital, their own labor, their own sweat equity to start a small firm, but who have so much of the upside kicked upward towards the corporate, the main corporate entity. And we're seeing that manipulation of labor and corporate law take place here. And that's really, really frustrating to see. So how does this compare to some of the things that other countries have done in this moment? I was joking with some people recently about there's been a lot of interest in sectoral bargaining in the United States. And there's a big Mm -hmm. project out of Harvard and people have been writing about a lot and people are trying to circulate the idea. And it's never like whenever I've heard of it, I've never heard part of the sales pitches. Sectoral bargaining can help negotiate labor as a coherent entity, equitably preventing a cascade of business failures across the entire economy during a global pandemic. Uh, but that's apparently one absolutely one of the selling points of a strong labor movement. So yeah. look at a country like Denmark, where in a very real real sense, labor capital and the government can sit down at a table and figure out what they're going to do to like manage the next four months. That does not exist in the United States. You have a mix of large corporations who interface through uh, a very uh, a very polite form of, of government that's very amicable to their needs. Right. Uh, you have a lot of state and local governments who administer labor law um, that are often very cruel and punitive to workers, don't have a labor movement that is robust and has enough density, forget the political valiance of it, um, that just has the density to sit down and say, okay, here's how we want our workers to be treated over the next four months uh, in a way that's like, has power and, and the coherence of like an actual movement behind it. And so places like Denmark, you can do that where they've essentially frozen the economy for the next three to four months. I think the government's going to pay essentially, I think, 75% of all business expenses. People have tried to propose this. And I was personally quite surprised at how much interest there was in Capitol Hill. Conservative staffers who I know from here and there were like really interested in these proposals like by Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Sayas to like essentially do what Denmark did. But when you actually look about how you would go about doing it, there's just an institutional vacuum. Like where's the labor entity who's going to sit down? Who's who's the capital entity? Uh, And instead you have the Small Business Administration, which is, with all due respect to it, like a, a small gimmicky thing for small businesses to get slightly discounted loans. It is not a tripartite government by itself. It is not going to answer the labor question. So you're, you got a pool of money that can go to small businesses, but it's limited. The process is very confusing. You're going to have corporate, corporate lobbyists at the Marriott walk all their quote unquote small business employees through the process rapidly while a plumber who runs a shop with five people is not going to know how to navigate the system. Uh, I think it's just a real mess and it shows how 
just like institutionally United States lags. And it's not just like about spending or about like the actual institutions of the U.S. just lag in being able to address these fundamental problems compared to some other countries who all have their own problems. You know, the U.K. is also doing something like this at 80 percent, though I know less about it. And I know yeah. I know Sarah follows the U.K. politics very close. Yeah. I mean, so the U.K. plan is. Yeah, it sounds great. Right. It sort of drove me nuts to watch everybody here after like weeks of the UK government doing basically nothing and saying everything is fine and Boris Johnson literally going to hospitals and shaking hands with everybody and then giving a press conference um, in case you think Trump is bad. Then, you know, the the sort of deer in headlights um, chancellor goes at Rishi Sunak goes out and is like, we're going to pay 80% of business expenses if you keep people on payroll. And it's amazing that suddenly everybody's like, he's great. He's doing a wonderful job. Um, there's still nothing for gig economy workers there. They're telling people to apply for universal credit over there, which is also um, very broken. Universal credit is basically all of the unemployment, any sort of welfare benefit all rolled into one. It's um, tiny. It doesn't do enough. It's incredibly punitive. And as you can all probably imagine, having seen our unemployment numbers, it's crashing under the crisis of people getting laid off and applying for benefits. So we're supposed to hear something actually today. Again, we're recording on Thursday about what the UK government is going to do for all of the people who are not covered by um, the thing that they've already announced. So I don't know what it's going to be, but they've been saying that for like a week and still haven't announced anything. So yeah, before you look at the UK government and say they're doing a great job, they're really not. And London <laughs> is like theoretically on lockdown, but a lot of people are still being forced to go into work. So yeah. It's fascinating when you see other countries are also like, yeah, like all of our employees will be covered. And it's like, oh, yeah, but there's like all these people who perform wage labor who are not legally employees. And what are you going to do? And it's like, oh, right. That huge thing that we built the economy around in the last several decades of contingent and, and secure work. Uh, right. Like, That's going to be fucked. to get bigger right now. Right. Like the, the people who are, quote unquote, hiring, although they, they they both claim to be hiring in this moment and also claim to not have employees, of course, are things like Instacart. Right. Where people go do your grocery shopping for you. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, well, OK, but like, can you give those people unemployment insurance like wink, wink, even if they're not your employees? Right. <laughs> These days, it's more like the U.S. and the U.K. are sort of uh, bad bad examples for each other to follow. Um, I know. The U.K. Not... the U.K. economy basically looks a lot more like ours than we like to think. So, yes. But um, to to descend once more in, into the weeds, um, so there's a there's about 150 billion here for states and localities. You mentioned earlier that um, you know the, the, this there could have been creative ways to deliver aid through uh, state and local entities. Does this bill really offer any of that? And and were there were there better ways to kind of distribute this funding? I know New York was complaining that they kind of got seemed to get sort of very like. Uh, a disproportionately small amount of uh, what was ultimately mm -hmm. allotted uh, in comparison to like the type of uh, healthcare crisis that we're facing right now. So I don't know, does it, does it, does it strike you as uh, inequitably distributed or um, maybe, you know, just kind of sloppily put together? I think it's more just the amounts too low. Um, you know, like the, obviously dividing the small pie is like going to be hard and it's going to feel unjust, but the real injustice is just like, we're not going to cover what's going to happen to the states. A lot of the spending is more or less tied to COVID response, which is really right. important. Um, but that's actually not the economic response. The economic response is a knockoff effect of that. And there's a whole separate set of obligations that happen from the 
three million people who claimed unemployment uh, this this week, um, you know, four times the record high uh, of any other month or any other period um, to, you know, just like, you know, like the lack of tax revenues. I mean, Trump is going to probably, I, I'm not sure if this is official yet, um, postpone taxes, which is great for yeah. individual people. Pretty sure that- it's, individ- it's, it, it's happened because I've already gotten emails from my accountant saying it's happened. All right. So uh, there we go. But as far as I understand, um, it's also going to be delayed for states, which is great for people, um, but to get that forbearance, but like a disaster for states, which do not aren't generally capable of running large deficits and really do need like money to come. Like, you know, the federal government, it's like fake. It's like it's, it's as much money as we need to address social problems given the real capacity of our economy to do things like the basic lessons of macroeconomics states don't work that way like states need the money to come into the checking account before they can spend the money from the checking account and they have some wiggle room but not that much and so the fact that taxes are delayed is going to put extra pressure on them um little things like that are going to add up very quickly in a recession states are the frontline responders so the fact that you there's not a more robust amount of money i think you'll really feel it and you'll really feel it if the economy is very, uh, if the recovery is very weak. I mean, the federal government does have, I mean, it has the authority to straight up to bail out cities that, you know, are, are underwater and things like that. Right. I mean, they could have done something much more, could have taken a much more, a much larger intervention if, if um, anticipating, if, if things are bad as people anticipate right now. Yeah. So uh, re- uh, there was this great moment last July, which uh, we were very uh, conscious of because um, J.W. Mason, an economist, and I at the Roosevelt Institute have been putting a lot of uh, inquiry and, and arguments into this to try to get people to address it. Um, Representative Talib from uh, Michigan, well, you know, a member of the squad who's really awesome. She's in the House. She pushed uh, Federal um, Federal Reserve Chairman um, uh, Powell to ask, why don't you bail out states and cities? in a crisis. And he's like, well, we don't bail out people. And, he, and she's like, well, you bailed out the corporate sector in 2009. Uh, and he's like, well, we had to, it was a crisis. They do emergency things like their essential services, I suppose. I don't know if you use that exact phrase, uh, but that's what he was conveying. And she's like, okay, yeah, I get that. But then why don't cities and states that provide education and health and infrastructure, like why aren't those also essential? Because they all get swamped and it's happening right now. And he, he um, said, let's talk about it next time. And then they didn't talk about it next time when she pushed him again. Um, but now it's really live and real. And there's a clause in the bill that demands the Federal Reserve look into this. I mean, that's probably like Congress is really loath to get into. Uh, it was really funny when when to do that, because like at the same conference, um, uh, all the Democrats were like, trying to defend Powell against Trump because Trump said mean tweets about him for raising interest rates, like all inside uh-huh. of politics. And so like literally at this con- at this panel, which like I'm paying attention to, um, all the Democrats are just like, how dare Trump do this to you? How dare Trump, you know, like step on Stay your authority, send you mean tweets. Like they printed out, they actually printed out one of the tweets and put it up. And then Talib and uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez both were like, why aren't you doing more to help unemployed people in communities? <laughs> and it was just like, such a generational shift within the Democratic Party that I, I hope continues. But now that might actually be more relevant because um, there's a lot of pressure on them to for the Federal Reserve to step into the states and uh, basically buy their bonds until the crisis passed. In the same way they're going to do it for, um, you know, like Goldman Sachs and repo markets, um, mm-hmm. you know, to actually get it to the frontline community. So one hopes that that effort is a success. Yeah. So in the long term, I mean, presuming this legislation passes, um, I mean, 
eventually down the line, we'd probably need to uh, have some other legislation that would address uh, like an economic recovery act of some sort. If, if we do, if the, if the uh, impending recession uh, does get as bad as we think it will. So um, what do you think a, a sort of a long-term economic recovery trajectory would look like? I don't know. Honestly, it's, 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 that is absolutely the correct question, but it's like a, a tough question because like it should have been more addressed in this one and there's ways to do it. And the fact that it, like we have to ask like, uh, what's going to happen next? Like, uh, and the fact that we don't already have some clues from this bill is really, really a missed opportunity um, by the Democrats to demand it and by any competent party to do it. Yeah. Um, so it depends a lot about how bad the downslope is. Like, mm-hmm. if, if we can stop some of the bleeding, if we can keep businesses open, if we can take employment costs and you know put them on the public payroll. Uh, if we can do things to essentially freeze the economy for a while, it will be there in a better state to pick back up. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I, I worry personally, you know, I, I worry is someone who's thinking a lot about this, about like, you know, if you were going to buy a, a car or a couch or a house, you're not going to do it probably this month, but maybe right. you can just do the same thing in three months. But if you're going to yeah. go out for dinner or if you were going to get something checked up, or if you're going to engage with a lot of the service work that is an increasing part of our economy, you're not going to remake that up. And you're not going to take yeah. three times the yoga classes and three times the the, the dinners on one day. Maybe you will for a day or two, but hopefully not for the whole. I really miss restaurants. <laughs> but so, I don't think I can afford to. Right. So um, workers in, in those spaces, I think, are going to have a harder recovery and they're not going to make up what was lost. And I think that's a, a real detriment if we can't address it. And I mean, well, friends of the show, um, the, as they call themselves, Comrade Planet, Kate Aronoff and Danielle Donna-Cohen and Theoria Frankos and Alyssa Battistoni are part of a crew that put out a demand for a green stimulus But the thing I keep thinking about, of course, is caring work, which we are suddenly really realizing the value of. Um, And I'm thinking about this morning as I was looking at those numbers, was thinking about the way that the the Great Recession reshaped the economy, right? That a lot of the jobs that were lost in 2008 didn't come back at all. Um, And a lot of people who had been in sort of mid-level, middle-class, quote-unquote, work ended up in low-wage work. So thinking about how this crisis is likely to reshape work again, how can we be better prepared than we were in 2008 to actually say, like, take some of these lessons about which work is actually necessary in a crisis and use that to fight for something better on the other end? Yeah. I mean, so in the optimistic scenario, I think you see um, the the crunch in care work and health work, uh, the the fact that you know millions of people are about to lose their health care in an environment where they were primed to think that keeping their health care was a major selling point of not having Medicare for all. Right. Uh, I think a place where a lot of parents are like are relearning the importance of of daycare and professional education is they're having to do it on on their own uh, on the fly. Yeah. Uh, I think there might be room for a better reinvestment and expansion of the security of providing health and care and education and, and, and other work that's not as tr- that isn't rewarded by capitalist institutions because it's not profit uh, and is, is but it's ultimately what s- sustains the whole system uh, this work of social reproduction so I don't I, I'm I'm hopeful that that can happen and I think 
if anything can happen, that seems possible. Um, you know, I also worry, you know, we shouldn't sugarcoat the moment. Like if yeah. unemployment is very high for a long time, uh, you could see, even though you could see a political retrenchment, just that comes from periods of high unemployment where people just want to take care of themselves and they don't want to think more generously or about how they can provide security collectively. So I don't know which way it goes. I do think um, even with crazy high deficits, we're going to see for a long time, uh, they're actually going to be too small. No matter mm-hmm. how scary they are, as a matter of numbers, like we have, you know, ten fingers and ten toes, so we like think of a trillion as being such a big number because there are so many zeros on it. But it's as a percent of GDP, as a percent of what is needed, it's not very much money. And so I think there really will be the need for uh, a massive and even maybe internationally coordinated investment project of several trillion dollars, <laughs> of which we also happen to have a climate crisis <laughs> right, right alongside of it, which needs several trillion dollars of investment over the next decade, globally coordinated. So uh, I always like get very frustrated because there's these two conversations happening. One is like about the impending climate catastrophe that's already happening in our lives. Uh, and then on the other hand, it's like, wow, there's all this capital flushing around that has no useful outlet. If only someone could direct the investment of several trillion dollars. And it's like, yeah. okay, these are perfect for each other, maybe this will be the opportunity that we can take advantage of it. Yeah. And as we like to remind everybody here on Belabored, care jobs are green jobs. Yeah. That was Mike Konzel, Director for Progressive Thought at the Roosevelt Institute and also member of Descent's editorial board. You can read more from Mike on the current crisis at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org, where we will put links to the things we've discussed here today. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. We've been hearing a lot about panic buying and stockpiling of toilet paper and whatnot during the coronavirus crisis, but is that actually the problem? Novara Media's Craig Gent argues no in a piece titled When Logistics Run Out of Time, and one that I think is particularly important to read right now as we talk labor in the time of coronavirus. Because, of course, logistics workers like those at Amazon, who we heard about earlier in the show, are still working. Craig notes, quote, unfortunately, these challenges speak less to the behavior of individual shoppers, selfish or otherwise, and rather more worryingly to the nature of how supermarket logistics work. It may be comforting to know enough food exists and that logically there will be enough to go around, but that means little if supermarkets can't get it onto their shelves. This is something that cannot be blamed on individual shoppers any more than they can be blamed for needing to buy things like food from places like supermarkets for the simple reason that what is overwhelming supermarkets right now has less to do with Ian and Karen's personal appetite for flour and more to do with fundamental logistical considerations for supermarkets, such as footfall and time, end quote. The problem, in other words, is that the way supermarket supply chains are designed means that a slight increase in demand at any one time, people buying food in the grocery store for seven days at a pop rather than assuming they'd eat out two or three times in that time, or people buying extra for their neighbors who have symptoms, or people who are planning for a possible self-isolation for the recommended 14 days, means that a certain high-demand item, you know, that toilet paper we keep hearing about, might end up gone for days. Craig continues... 
quote, supermarkets keep their shelves stocked on the basis of just-in-time logistics and predictive analytics, a finely tuned system many decades in the making, which combines mundane technologies to determine supermarkets' purchasing, production, and distribution needs in the most efficient way possible. Scanning item barcodes updates the stock inventory while timestamping each purchase and recording combinations of items bought together. Loyalty cards build up profiles of shoppers over long periods of time, helping the company to understand customers' purchasing patterns longitudinally. Doorway security detectors double up as footfall trackers. Every day, data about shoppers' behavior is used to determine the most cost-efficient way for supermarkets to buy produce and put it on the shelves by predicting what customers are going to buy and when. By now, each major supermarket is essentially an expert in the business of efficient purchasing, storage, and predictive analytics. There is a reason even the most obscure, non-perishable item rarely sits on a shelf long enough to gather dust. It helps that, broadly speaking, we are creatures of habit, whether we like it or not. Yet supermarket systems are designed with a certain level of adaptability in mind. Famously, as Hurricane Katrina battered Louisiana, Walmart was able to mobilize its logistical systems to provide essential items to thousands of affected people on a non-commercial basis even quicker than the National Guard. End quote. So, all those logistic systems must be really smart, right? And we should be totally prepared for them to have everything we need, right? Well... So Craig continues, quote, Just-in-time logistics, drawing closely from its sister just-in-time production, is a logistical approach which is centrally concerned with minimizing waste. Conceived of in the broadest sense, the idea of minimizing waste is to maximize efficiency and therefore profit through the reduction of as much surplus time and space as possible. Classically, this means a strong aversion to warehouses with expensive ground rent sitting full of stock in favor of more dynamic distribution hubs and, to use the Amazon nomenclature, fulfillment centers, where stock turnover is very high and flows of inbound and outbound goods are constant. The essential principle for which the philosophy is named is that goods are moved between each stage of the supply chain just in time to meet demand and not before, end quote. This is all so relevant to the question of protective gear that I keep returning to this episode. Farhad Manju at the New York Times had a column too on logistics this week, and he pointed out, few in the protective equipment industry are surprised by the shortages because they've been predicted for years. In 2005, the George W. Bush administration, oh, remember that, called for the coordination of domestic production and stockpiling of protective gear in preparation for pandemic influenza. In 2006, Congress approved funds to add protective gear to a national strategic stockpile. Among other things, the stockpile collected 52 million surgical face masks and 104 million and 95 respirator masks. Yet all of those have been used, or many of them have in any case, and distributing them is becoming difficult as states, well, all need more than exists. And why? Well, we didn't restock the things because it seemed wasteful at the time. So what does all this say about workers, then? Craig notes that in such a just-in-time system, the labor force is also regarded as a form of waste to be minimized. Every effort is made to ensure these critical workers are as productive as humanly possible. Those workers are now, of course, critical frontline workers in a pandemic, facing anxious shoppers, blaming them for empty shelves, when their lousy conditions, too, are a product of a just-in-time system that has built incredibly fragile, sensitive supply chains that prioritize profits over people. My pick for ARG, I wish I'd written that, is what happens if healthcare workers stop showing up? 
by Thomas Kirsch in The Atlantic. So this isn't exactly a piece I wish I'd written because I'm not a doctor, but I did find its candor and humility refreshing. Kirsch, an ER doctor in Washington, D.C., reflects on the anxiety that hits him each time he goes into work these days. He writes, quote, If I sit and think about it too long, undisturbed, I get nervous. I'm afraid to go to work, and yet I'm told I must. The flitting anxiety swells as I put on my scrubs and head to the car. The streets are empty. I drive alone into the epicenter, unquote. You don't have to be a doctor to understand what it's like to be terrified of your job, but Kirsch captures the fear and tension that plagues many healthcare workers as they brave a risk that few others are willing to in order to save lives. In a time of disaster, there's often an elevation of our first responders in the public sphere, especially healthcare workers. They're portrayed as living saints. But Kirsch admits that healthcare workers are prone to questioning themselves, feeling frightened, even wanting to quit in the face of a pandemic. The public has been disturbed, too, by images of nurses forced to make do with reused masks and garbage bags used as gowns. It's absurd, and at some point, the shameful inadequacies that they have to work through begin to erode the sense of heroic mission. The chaos unfolding at hospitals in New York and around the world show that although doctors are essential, they are often treated as if they are disposable. Kirsch writes, quote, The United States needs its healthcare workers to see it through this crisis, but there are no replacements on the shelf. They can't be built, trained, or repurposed from other jobs. Unless the country does dramatically more to provide them with the equipment they need to do their jobs safely and to assure them that they will be cared for if they fall ill, to provide their family with a measure of security, it risks losing them. What happens if they need to be quarantined when they start to die or don't come to work? Unquote. That last bit about when they stop coming to work might stun many readers. Why would someone with so many responsibilities just snap and decide not to come to work? How reckless of them. But even during normal times, burnout is extremely common among medical professionals. Pandemics are especially touchy. Kirsch cites surveys showing that a considerable portion of healthcare workers would refuse to report to work in the face of a pandemic. The past few weeks suggest that if healthcare workers are beset with institutional barriers that make it virtually impossible to do their job properly, the work ethic breaks down. In fact, continuing to work under such circumstances becomes itself unethical. Over the years, there have been a number of nurses' strikes in this country and doctors' strikes around the world, usually in hospital systems that are extremely distressed. A common criticism is that these medical personnel put their own economic interest above that of patients. Now, during normal times, we definitely appreciate healthcare workers. In our everyday parlance, we may praise them for doing yeoman's work, for treating us compassionately, for being upstanding members of the community. But once these people stop working, they're castigated for betraying their duties. Politicians blame them for worsening the very problems that they are trying to call attention to in their industrial action. This apprehension about the risks of the job is even more acute for lower-waged healthcare workers who labor alongside doctors and nurses. Kirsch observes, quote, We have an obligation to treat all patients because we chose our profession and are well-rewarded by society with money and respect. Nurses have a similar professional duty but have specific exemptions. But there are few, if any, obligations for all the support staff that make my work possible. The techs, clerks, registrars, environmental staff. They don't take an oath. Some are paid minimum wage have few benefits, and get none of the societal accolades reserved for doctors and nurses. Why should they die for a $25,000 a year job and $10,000 worth of life insurance? Who's going to feed their kids when they're gone? Unquote. To be clear, Kirsch is not calling for a strike, but he is contemplating the possibility that doctors may simply walk off the job when the daily grind becomes too much to bear. 
He calls for special safeguards for all clinicians, including not only adequate personal protective gear, which is basic, but also guarantees that they will have economic support if they become infected on the job. But the main demand is that society recognizes and appreciates the demands being placed on them and acknowledges that healthcare workers are people too. Yes, there is an oath that doctors take to treat patients with fairness and to do no harm, but there's also a social contract between our healthcare system and the communities that rely on it. We cannot keep breaking and starving our healthcare system and expect the people who make that institution run continue to uphold their side of the contract. Sadly, it's in the midst of a global health crisis that all of the infirmities and injustices ingrained in our medical infrastructure start to come to light. And by then, we can't expect healthcare workers to keep trying to do the impossible. We can just thank them for every day that they continue to work against the odds. And can we really blame them when they wake up in the morning and decide that the right thing to do is not show up? And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to Natasha for making us sound good. And you can catch all of our archived episodes at descentmagazine.org. There you can also find ways to become a sustaining member of this show so you can keep supporting us in what we're doing. And of course, we want to hear from you if you have any story ideas for us. If you're a so-called essential worker being thrust to the front lines of the pandemic in our healthcare system or in public services. If you're a disgruntled gig worker who feels left behind in the new rescue package. If you're a frustrated working parent trying to hold it down under lockdown with your kids at home and no job, let us know. And especially let us know if you're working through this pandemic and you're struggling to stay safe on the job or if your boss is cutting corners on safety and putting you at risk and you're struggling with the impossible choice of whether to keep working to support your family or protecting your health we want to hear from you get us on twitter at hashtag belabored or you can write to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and we'll be collecting your stories for our new belabored stories section and you can check out the whole series on descent magazine's website Thanks, over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.